0: Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips.
1: Welcome. I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. September is Suicide Prevention Month, and today, September 17th, is National Physician Suicide Awareness Day, The dangerous reality is that the rate of physician suicide exceeds that of the general population. According to the American Federation for Suicide Prevention, the rate for male physicians is 1.4 times higher than the general male population, and for female physicians, 2.27 times higher than the general population. Today, you will hear the personal story of the tragic loss by suicide of Dr. Lorna Breen, whose death illuminates a number of the causes of suicide and possible steps towards suicide prevention. Our guest is someone very close to this tragedy. Corey Feist is an MBA, and he's the co-founder with his wife, Jennifer Feist, the sister of Dr. Lorna Breen, of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. Corey Feist is a healthcare executive with over 20 years of experience. He's currently serving as the chief executive officer of the University of Virginia Physicians Group. He also holds an adjunct faculty appointment at UVA Darden School of Business, where he's currently teaching an important course entitled Managing in a Pandemic, the Challenge of COVID-19. He's the chair of the board of the Charlottesville Free Clinic and has focused throughout his career on transforming health care by empowering people and improving processes. Reflected now in his work with the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation, Corey is committed to protecting physicians and preventing physician suicide. Corey Feist, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live.
2: Thank you, Suzanne, for having me. It's a privilege to be here today.
1: Okay, Corey, let's stop by sharing the story of this very important woman, Dr. Lorna Breen.
2: So Lorna was an incredible physician. Uh, she was a sister, she was a daughter, she was a friend to so many, and she was the cool aunt to eight amazing nieces and nephews. Um, Lorna spent her career um, practicing at New York Presbyterian Hospital in Manhattan, uh, where she became the director of the Allen Hospital Emergency Room in 2008. Um, from birth, pretty much, Lorna wanted to be an emergency room doctor in New York City. So she was fulfilling her passion and, and her drive her whole life to get to that point. Everything she did through her childhood, to her formal um, schooling years, was with that goal in mind. And, and she truly believed that, that medicine was her calling. Um, she lived and breathed medicine. She had many times when she would go on vacation and would have had to have resuscitated a, a, a person on an airplane or in an airport or in a, in a lounge somewhere. Um, she was always on, if you will, and just had this incredible passion about being a physician. She traveled the world. She loved to travel the world and would take advantage of opportunities to travel when others you might think, might think otherwise. So as an example, when she would study for her board exams, for recertification um, as a physician, she would fly, fly by herself to uh, places like Croatia and study just to get another view on the world as well as, as to, as to accomplish her study and her, and refine her craft. Um, She was an avid outdoors woman. She was an avid snowboarder in particular um, and 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 an amazing salsa dancer. Um, And uh, many of her colleagues at work and friends in New York uh, would go out salsa dancing with her um, if if she wasn't on a ski trip with them somewhere out west. Mm.
1: Um,
2: And uh, as as we like to say, um, since her passing, uh, despite the fact that there were millions of reasons not to do it, she drove a convertible sports car in Manhattan, um, and, and she she was just living living this amazing life. Um, what I think is important to know about Lorna in in, in that really discreet period of her life when when it, it came to an end, is that Lorna had no prior history of of any um, formal um, mental health um, diagnosis or challenges. Um, she was a uh achieving her MBA um at uh, the the Cornell um business school you know nights and weekends in in Manhattan and uh in a period of about 3 weeks went from being um diagnosed with covid herself to uh to quarantining at her home and taking care of herself while she was trying to manage an emergency room uh that had uh, a pandemic at its real peak um and where her colleagues were going out because of their own um, COVID, uh, contracting COVID themselves. Um, and then she came back um, into an environment which uh, was described by her to us as like Armageddon. Mm. She, there was no, there were the, the volume of death and dying that she observed in the period of time when she returned back to work that short period of time. Was like a tsunami, and it overwhelmed her. Um, she spent twelve-hour shifts, about nine of them in a row. After she came back on service, once mm-hmm. she um, when she came back into the workforce, and w- w- what and it didn't last long because she didn't even make it through all mine shift because um, on April ninth, um, she called my wife. Jennifer, on the phone from her apartment in Manhattan, um, having only gone back to work on April 1st. And on April 9th, she called and said, I can't get out of my chair. And I will never forget, uh, we were working from home at the time, and uh, my wife, Jennifer, um, sent me a message and said, um, how many days until the peak in New York, according to the University of Virginia, um, and their, their um, data analysis. And I told her how many days. But by then, it, she wasn't going to be able to get Lorna back in to hang on any longer. And when she heard that Lorna was unable to get out of her chair, she did what any kind of heroic sister would do. And she effectuated a health chain of friends, uh, one who lived in Connecticut, who drove in, and was actually in mental health in Connecticut, and canceled patients and drove in and pulled Lorna out, drove her to Philadelphia, where another childhood friend had driven from elsewhere in Pennsylvania to meet up, put Lorna in the car, drove her down to Baltimore, just north of Baltimore, where Jennifer was waiting on the side of the road, having driven up about three and a half hours from Charlottesville, Virginia, to pick up her sister. They drove um, through the late evening um, directly to the University of Virginia Health Center, where Ona went through um, the emergency room and was admitted to the um, inpatient psych unit at UVA. And she remained there and was making a very strong recovery um, for a period of of many days. And um, when she came out of the inpatient hospitalization, she was discharged to um, an outpatient um, service um, and an outpatient therapist for for work, for working with her. she, she was discharged to the care of her mother, who was actually a retired psychiatric nurse from the same unit that Ona had spent the prior week plus. Um, she stayed for a few nights with her mother at home, and then um, she came to um, our home um, for the weekend to spend the weekend with my children and, uh, and my wife. And um, on Sunday morning, um, the twenty sixth of, of of April, um, she died by suicide. Um, and she died at the University of Virginia Medical Center. So um, when she when she died, it was a complete and total shock. Um, and it still continues to be a shock.
1: Mm-hmm. and
2: we have been we have been working diligently ever since she died to shine a light on the challenges that all of our healthcare heroes face on a daily basis. Uh, Many of those challenges preceded this pandemic, but now are intensely magnified by it.
1: Corey, it's really an unbelievable story of the kind of expectations we have for physicians, the kind of expectations they have for themselves. I thought a lot about um, Dr. Lorna Breen, and in a way, I want people to consider that sometimes it is the person who is so capable that, and we're going to talk about it, can do what the medical profession asks. That is to put off sleep, save people on a plane, never to be off. And at the same time, to be someone who is who, she's a doctor. That was her identity. Now, I know your wife feels, and I do too, that, And I've had so many colleagues who've also had COVID, and as therapists, they have really wrestled with symptoms that we don't talk enough about, which is persistence of respiratory problems, cognitive problems, psychological problems. We don't know enough about this illness. So when you take someone who's in charge and they feel suddenly handicapped that is very hard. And if their thinking is somewhat impaired by the COVID virus itself, there is a thought of how will I ever be who I am? And, you know, some of the theories on suicide really suggest that it's that inescapable feeling that it'll never change I'll never think clearly. I'll never be strong. I, she's a snowboarder. She was an athlete. So you really don't know. But the theory sort of underscored the possibility that when someone like Lorna is put in a compromised position that she doesn't think she can get out of, it becomes very, very dangerous. And I know what we're going to talk about now is what are some of the dangers that our physicians and our medical professionals face? Why is there a higher suicide rate for this group? And so I and you work with physicians also. I want us to look at some of the some of the issues of burnout, anxiety, depression. Let's take a look at what drives this and then what makes it almost impossible for them to seek help. Sure. Um
2: so So taking it in the order that you just gave me, I think that prior to COVID, the public health emergency or crisis that we anticipated for this year in the healthcare community was actually the burnout of the healthcare workforce. And the statistic, again, that predates COVID uh, COVID on suicide for physicians is that 400 a year die by suicide twice, as you as you stated at the beginning of your program, twice the rate of the national average. Important also to add that nurses have the same percentage mm-hmm. at twice yes. the rate of... of so, so it is not simply... It is not limited to physicians. The, the, the nursing profession struggles as well. And prior to COVID, the... the, the primary drivers of burnout, I would categorize as obstacles that sat between physicians and their patients. The biggest one being the electronic medical record and inefficiencies associated with the electronic medical record. Mm -hmm. While the electronic medical record has brought many positives to the healthcare community, a significant negative associated with it. It is the number one contributor towards this crisis that we find ourselves in. And so I think what's, what's, what's incredibly important to know is that we started the pandemic with a workforce of healthcare providers who were already significantly burnt out. Right. And what we've now asked them to do, Suzanne, is we've asked them to run this marathon without a clear finish. And 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 they weren't. They, it it's not like they were at the top of their training going into the marathon. Many of them, many, were already suffering from burnout. Um, and so, the the largest contributor of that being this, I would say, inefficiencies and the frustrations with just the day to day. There's a phrase in healthcare now that's referred to as pajama time. And that is the time before and after work when healthcare providers have to document the work that they did in the electronic medical records. So mm-hmm. as, you, as you referenced before, physicians feeling like they need to be on all the time. Well, they literally are on all the time. But guess what? They're not practicing medicine necessarily or taking care of patients, doing what you and I would think as patients would be. They're using their top of their license or providing us their greatest their greatest degree of skill. No, they're sitting in there and they're documenting notes. And um, while that is an important, while that is that is very important for patient care, the the laborious path just mounts over and over again. I had that physician at the University of Virginia at one point um, talk about that that he um, that he was so frustrated with the documentation requirements that that alone was just driving him to retire much earlier. And I've had many, many, many others talk about that. So so I think what's important is for for folks to understand that how we got here was really contributed largely to the bureaucracy and the challenges of practicing medicine. Now where we are is we're in a place where the entire country, whether you were in New York or whether you're in a smaller market that didn't have the volume of COVID patients what you have now is you have an exhausted workforce and you mm. have a workforce of folks who every single day have to don and doff PPE to take care of normal patients, not just necessarily COVID patients. Mm. And so you yeah. have this, you have, you have an, a level of exhaustion and, and, and contributing burnout that's now occurring and magnifying by the disease.
1: I'm going to stop you here, Corey, because we're going to have to take a break, but you lay it out so beautifully. I mean, we've done even a show on moral injury, and it's exactly as you describe it. They are not able to do what they were trained to do and what their calling is. We're going to talk about that on the other side of the break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Chief Executive Officer of the University of Virginia Physicians Group, Corey Feist. He is the co-founder with his wife of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation, committed to protecting physicians and preventing physician suicide. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. And just quickly, you never have to feel you're without someone you could connect if you feel you're in crisis. The Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. Stay with us. We'll be right back. America is on your favorite smart
2: speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. The special needs community is made up of many individuals from children with Down syndrome to autism and ADHD issues to those who may have suffered a brain injury. On More Than Special, host Jermaine suford and her guest explore topics that are of interest to special needs children and adults our program is a forum for parents caregivers and experts to come together to discuss relevant topics listen every tuesday at 8 a.m pacific time and 11 a.m eastern time on the voice america variety channel
0: Get ready to go inside the lives of some of the top recording artists the music industry is known. Join host Troy Bronstein every week as he becomes a prince among queens. Troy discusses the careers and past, present, and future projects from these artists. And if there's time on each show, you just might hear some performance gems as well. Listen for Prince Among Queens every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Join hosts NavaNav every week for Good Morning Canada. Our home is Canada, but our message and reach is boldly global. Our focus is on the alternative perspective, the hidden dimension, and the expansive horizon. Ideas are designed to be challenged, perceptions shattered, and information balanced. We invite you to visualize the converse viewpoint. Dare to be acquiring, but always promise an hour of lively fun. Listen worldwide at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: Welcome back to Psych Up Live, which we have a very important show today. It's on physician suicide, and our guest is Corey Feist, the co-founder of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. Now, Corey, we were just speaking of the fact that when physicians start to feel burnout, which really overlaps with depression and anxiety, and we know that we whatever they were dealing with, as you say, let's just turn the volume up with COVID because then they're dealing with the inability to get on top of it. The numbers, the numbers they describe as dying without anybody noticing, their inability to do what they've always done. As one said, Young people walk out of hospitals. They don't die in hospitals. So it's an unbelievably traumatic situation, not only for patients, but for these workers, for these medical heroes who were trying so hard. But as you work with them and your family, there's so many physicians in the family. What happens if I do feel depressed? Would I ever say it to anyone else? Would I acknowledge it in myself? What if I feel moral injury, like, oh, my God, how did I not save these people? Why am I doing medical records when I should be helping people? Where did they go with that anguish, which is so central in, in, to the dynamics of suicide?
2: Suzanne, I'm, that's an excellent question. In one of our writings on this, um, this event and this issue, um, we described Lorna as the canary in the coal mine for the industry. Um, what I would say to you is what we don't need to do is create a, a, a number of you know, stronger canaries or redesign the canary. What we need to do is we need to redesign the coal mine. And by that, I mean that the industry right now is broken on this issue. And it's broken in two significant ways. From the inside, from a cultural perspective, Physicians and healthcare workers don't feel like they can reach out to a colleague when they see that colleague is hurting, or if they themselves are hurting, they they do not feel like they can reach out because it is a sign of weakness. And that has been manifest over and over again. I would I would venture to guess that every physician who might be listening to this program had a period of time when they had to just have a stiff upper lip and work through whatever the traumatic issue is, whatever they had must be facing. Um, what, the issues that you and I face as humans every day, where they're expected to be heroic, we, we, I have been told so many times by individuals in my career Um, professionally as well as through friends who are physicians, about um, circumstances when they were struggling and they just could not either ask for help or they observed someone else struggling and it was not appropriate to tap them on the shoulder. What I think is really important on this issue, and just just to be very focused in this conversation, is that when Lorna went back to work, in that period of time between the time that that she went back to work on the 1st and on the ninth, when she called Jennifer, she didn't feel like she could keep up. And she believed that many of her colleagues observed that she couldn't keep up. And instead of feeling like maybe she should take a break, what she felt was absolute horror that others might see her weakness. Her weakness in the middle of a pandemic having having just officially recovered, but probably not fully recovered from the disease herself. Her horror of that, and and in addition, what we we feel very much so that if, if one of those colleagues had tapped her on the shoulder and said, hey, you need to go home, you need to sit down, you need to take a break, we would have probably had a different outcome. Mhm mhm absolutely. And and I don't believe me. I do not th- th- her colleagues, she loves her colleagues and I am not maligning them at all at all. They are they are strong and they're doing exactly what they are trying to do. It is the culture that dictates that you don't you don't sit down. The second well, piece is is what? this licensure issue which I want to talk about as well, but it sounds like you've got a question.
1: Well, I just wanted to give you a quote one, one female physician said, over time, we become so skilled at suppressing emotion, we lose touch with the signal completely. So not only is there a suppression of how they feel, I think physically, psychologically, but everybody, as you say, is part of a culture where the expectation is just keep on going and never admit that you are anything but at the top of your game. And, Corey, I'll tell you, the most dangerous factor with relationship to suicide is shame. You take a cop's gun away. You put a firefighter on light duty. A doctor feels like she's not up to par and she can't say anything. It puts them in a psychological trap.
2: And, and I would add to that, Suzanne, then you add the, their lack of ability to actually work, which is where I was about to go, which yeah. is that many... Many states in this country have um, licensure laws for physicians, which require disclosure of of mental health treatment um, that is unrelated to their ability to practice medicine, but which reinforce the stigma around seeking around self care and seeking mental health treatment themselves. So, so you have these licensure laws, and what I what what the tr- the tragedy that is Lorna, um, Lorna's death, was really, really came um, focused on that issue. Because when she was pulled out of Manhattan by her friends and her sister and placed in an inpatient psych unit, that for her was a career ender yes because of the stigma associated with it. And, and in fact, Jennifer and Lorna were, would, would kind of um, you know, make light of the fact that, her, that, that because we were so quiet with her friends and her colleagues in New York about what was going on, that they thought she might have been kidnapped because we weren't responding to their text. We weren't responding because for them to know where Lorna was in an inpatient hospital unit was, career, was a career ender. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so and so, when you asked Lorna uh, the days after she came out of the hospital about going back to work, she, she said, I'm going to lose my license and I'm never going to be able to work again. So your point is incredibly well taken, and it's magnified even further in this industry, which has the reinforcer. The reinforcer on the culture is the, are the licensure rules and many other kind of um, regulatory barriers that are similar to the licensure rules that just reinforce that it is not okay to, to, to seek any, any mental care. And I'll, I'll give you one very quick example. You mentioned in the, um, I believe you mentioned, if you, if you didn't, um, I'll mention it now. Um, Senator Kim Kaine has introduced the Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act in the U.S. Senate. It's got bipartisan support on the Senate side. Um, and it also has bipartisan support and is introduced on the House side. And as part of Senator Kane's listening tour, once he introduced that law, he came virtually to the University of Virginia and surrounded himself with healthcare providers, nurses, physicians, administrators, and said to that group, tell me your experience and how that's been through COVID. And one of those physicians who was responsible for, for the medical residents shared a story from just that morning. And and this is I'm I'm talking about this is a comment in the last month. So just Mm. that morning, two residents had come up to him and said, we have stopped taking our antidepressant medicine now that we are officially in medical residency because we don't want this to be reported against our licensure.
1: Oh, boy. And so
2: Mm. those are the kind of things that happen across this country every day that reinforce this stigma and, and prevent the burnout. From, from, being, uh, from being addressed for this very critical part of our workforce.
1: It is, it is so tragic. And one of the questions I want to ask you, given you also have a law background, is I think I read as of 2018, 32 state medical boards and 22 state nursing boards continue to ask mental health questions on licensing forms that are inconsistent with the American Disabilities Act. So how does that happen?
2: I'm, I'm not sure how it happens, but it needs to fix. It needs yeah. to be fixed. And, and in fact, we have joined, uh, Jennifer and I are, are surrounding ourselves, if you will, with a coalition of the willing right now. And as many, we've, we've had many, many groups reach out to us and want to partner. And one of those is the, is the American uh, Medical Women's um, Association, AMWA. And AMWA is, is starting a project right now, which is focused on analyzing those state laws and trying to work with us to develop standard language that each state medical board could use across the country, which we believe would comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm. And so, um, unintended, I believe, um, these questions reinforce the stigma. And I would take it just one step further for your listeners, because when a physician comes to a, to a hospital what happens is they have to come with a medical license, but then they have to apply for what are called cri- privileges or credentials. And those are the hospital's rules. And many times in many of those, those forms that they have to fill out to go to work in a hospital, those similar questions are asked. And so from a very grassroots level, we have this reinforced mm. stigma, which is you better not get any help. And if you do, it could cost you everything you worked for your entire life to get to this point. And so that is a heavy burden, particularly when you think about the amount of debt that medical students come out from, who come out of medical school with it. And, and the fact that these individuals have devoted their lives to helping others, they have to take any of that um any of their individual feelings on burnout, and whether their their emotions, they have to just quash them down, just like the quote you read earlier.
1: You know what they what what's overlooked here, and I'm going to share something from a, a mental health professional group: is the power of group support in keeping people healthy. After in March, an organization that I'm the community. Outreach person for a large organization, the American Group Psychotherapy Association. I, I think you, you and I have spoken uh, with the yes. the outreach with that. After COVID, so many, so many of our people, in in some way, were were got COVID, that they like Lorna began to panic about how they could function because. Mental health has just been skyrocketing. We all have so many patients. So in a round table, which we did through Zoom, you could see the relief on people's faces when someone said, it's been now a month. I'm an athlete. I can't walk across the room without having trouble breathing. Someone else said, am I the only one who feels like I have a cognitive fog? So essentially, When you see the power of what your wife even implied in one interview of buddy care, it is an unbelievable protection because then someone says, in fact, it's interesting. After 9-11, no uniform services were coming for help, but we knew they needed help. So it became a requirement. Buddy care, they were trained in buddy care. And everyone who took it realized that the best they could do is keep their eye on their buddy to see how he or she was doing. That's what we need for these professionals: that kind of permission to take care of each other.
2: And, and, and that's going to require two things. Right? And so I completely agree with what you're saying. And um, buddy care or a peer support program, however you call it, that's exactly mm-hmm. what, what what's needed. Because as you, as we know, we also have a very this country lacks a sufficient number of uh, trained mental mental health professionals to actually do all of this work now that – particularly now that the pandemic has hit. But I think that uh, we look to – if you look to examples of large uh, large sectors who have taken this on, on this issue, um, you could look – you look no further than the military, which has really done a, a tremendous amount of work training, training uh, soldiers – to provide that buddy care, as, as mm-hmm. you as you describe, some mm-hmm. uh, the New York Public Health, uh, the New York Public Hospital system has actually trained um, in this in this kind of a, uh, a way, which has been very effective. One of the one of my observations here is that you've got to have the formal training to become um, knowledgeable about what to do, but but that also is going to require that folks accept and be willing to accept a new culture and a new paradigm, which is to recognize that they're human and recognize that they're vulnerable like the rest of us. Because until they do that, you can train them all they want, but if they're not going to be willing to tap Lorna on the shoulder and say, hey, maybe you should sit down, or they're not willing to um, ask for help themselves, then, then, um, then you're, you're not going to be as effective or you won't be effective at all but if you combine those two, where you start talking about these issues and you train folks on how to do it, I think you've got a much better chance at, at, at turning this around. Uh, but both of them have to be uh, together, uh, together.
1: And in fact, we can even add what you started with. If someone realizes that someone can't do a 12-hour shift and then go home and in pajamas do medical records, if someone knows that it's okay to be depressed, be treated, and to go back and brilliantly work with patients, then we give people the opportunity to know you don't have to be perfect. Lorna said, I'll lose my career. That's that's a very dangerous thing to lose. It was like, I'll lose my identity. I won't be able to contribute. And the failure to contribute is another very high risk factor for suicide. So, As you say, the entire culture needs to be supported so that peer groups, the understanding of mental health, the fact that, how would we imagine military or emergency room folks would not be dealing with regulating stress and burnout? How would it even be physically possible or emotionally possible?
2: And and, 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 and it's... You know, particularly, I'll go back to Lorna's case, but then it's but but this is so much further beyond Lorna. But but if you think about just stepping back for a moment and you say, okay, you've just contracted a brand new disease. It's a novel virus. We don't know anything about it, but you've got it, and um, now you're going to have to go. Now you're going to go back into the workforce, and you're overwhelmed by a volume of death and dying you've never seen. To not be able to give herself a break, if you will. And recognize Mm -hmm. that you know what? Maybe this is overwhelming. Maybe this is too much for me. I I think it's it's just it's it's bordering on ridiculous to actually if you take a step back and go, of course it's going to be overwhelming. You know what? One of the some of the work that we've done um, since Lorna died was to work with um, work with the United States Air Force um, Surgeon General. um, I'm going to just stop you
1: there, Corey. I'm just going to stop. Corey, I'm just going to stop you there because we have to take a break, and I want you to pick this up right on the other side of it. Um, We're going to take a break. You're listening to Psych Up Live. We're with Corey Feist, and he is the co-founder of the Dr. Laura Breen Heroes Foundation. We're talking about prevention of physicians, suicide and we're talking about all the factors in the medical culture which need to become really we need to look at in order to make those who care for us safe stay with us we'll be right back
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease, to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation,
1: Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety.
0: America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. <laughs> Are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live.
1: Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We have a very important discussion today. We're talking about protecting and saving the lives of our physicians. We're talking about preventing physician suicide. And um, Corey Feist is with us speaking about the Dr. Lorna Breen Foundation that he created with Lorna's sister. Um, Corey, let's, let's go back. We were trying to think about options to not only make it not a stigma and not something you could lose your license for or not something that you literally would feel there's no reason to live for. Let's talk about options of how to intervene with you know, high-powered professionals in a very difficult situation. You mentioned you, you had some other ideas from your other experiences that you've been gathering.
2: Sure, sure. Um- there are a number of models, other in addition to peer support models that exist, um, and and the one that I was speaking of before the break was a model that uh, the military uses in in combat, and so in in learning after Lona died, that uh, from from um, the Surgeon General of the Air Force, Dorothy Hogg, um, what what the Armed Services do is that they have mental health professionals who are deployed uh, with medical units in, who go in tr- to treat uh, the, the wounded and injured in combat. And the concept there is that there is someone who is physically trained, you know, who's, who's professionally trained to look, for, um, to look for issues of burnout and, and, and when, when individuals are, are overwhelmed by the circumstance. That same model um, frankly, could and should have been deployed in a place like New York or these other yes. large metro areas where you, you in, that, in that crisis, when civilian medicine morphed into combat medicine overnight in these, in, these, in these areas. But if you take that model, there are a number of interventions that you can anticipate that would happen in a healthcare setting the death of a patient um, and medical error things of that nature where you can create an immediate and required intervention that, that, um, that occurs after the event where there, there's just a discussion. Um, and, and, and there's another example that we've used at the university of Virginia, which goes, goes along those lines and it's, it's referred to as the pause. And that is when a, when a patient dies, in any capacity at the university, in any in, under any circumstance, everyone on the medical team takes a pause and they reflect on what had occurred, and they reflect on the patient's life, and they they bring humanity into the into the back into the conversation, and they recognize um, that that this wasn't just going to the going to work, if you will. Nice. Um And and a lot of what we're talking about here is very simple. Um, in, it, it's simple in concept, but it's it's obviously not simple in execution. Um, in concept, what we're what we're just talking about is recognizing the humanity of all of this, yes.
1: and recognizing
2: Absolutely. that yeah. that 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 humanity, and recognizing that when when there are circumstances that are beyond your control, when you've worked twelve uh, hour shifts, when you've seen volumes of death and dying, w- whatever that circumstance is, that you. That you need to take a break and you did take a break for yourself. You know, Suzanne, one of the statistics that I learned after Lona died was that medical errors increase 200% when the healthcare provider is burnt out. So, this well, is not so. So, when you think about something like that, when you think about the fact that, that healthcare providers go to work and they get trained either as nurses or doctors and they spend many, many years and all they're trying to do is help to point out the fact that, you know, this burnout that you think. And you can just shove down and and not bring to light and not talk about not get not get help for this isn't just hurting you this is hurting your patient and maybe it's that framing that would that would that would help our medical professionals and our medical community recognize that they need to take a break
1: well just as you said at uh, um The University of Virginia, was it, the medical school? Yes. Okay. So once something becomes a required part of the protocol, because I can imagine if we sent in a mental health team to um, Columbia Presbyterian, in their busyness of work, they wouldn't even look at us or come near us. But if part of the protocol is a requirement to check in, and they are and they are supported for doing that, it be, we take the stigma out, we take the shame out, and we allow them to start realizing what you said. Help for burnout saves lives.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, certainly the military has still got a long way to go on this issue. But interestingly, in my early conversations after Lorna died with Senator Tim Kaine, um, Senator Kaine um, was reflecting on his son, who's in the Marines. And he talked about the fact that um, following any, any kind of a, of a combat mission, that all of the personnel are required to do a, um, a mental health screening. And so it's, it's, that, it's that process that needs to be fixed. Um, you, at the beginning of the show, you talked about how I spent my career working on process redesign. That's certainly one way that we could work on some process redesign to, to, to fix this problem.
1: Mm-hmm. And even when they do screening, it's like, I want to add screening and support. So there's not the feeling I'm going to check out and if you're depressed, you're in trouble. But rather, understandably, this was a critical incident or a critical mission. Nobody walks away from that without some feelings that they have to integrate. It, it goes with the territory yeah. of not trying to be superhuman. But when it's part of the whole protocol, it really helps. On that note, let's talk about the very important Dr. Lorna Breen Health Care Protection Act.
2: So I'm, I'm really thrilled that this act was introduced in Congress. And the fact that it has been introduced with bipartisan support in both the Senate and the House is, is truly amazing. Um, it was originally um, introduced by the co-sponsors in the Senate, um, Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia, Jack Reed of Rhode Island, Todd Young of Indiana, Bill Cassidy, Cassidy, excuse me, of Louisiana, and then in the in the House, Representative Max Rose of New York, and then David McKinley of West Virginia, Anthony Brindisi of New York, Denver Riggleman of Virginia, Morgan Griffith of Virginia, and Fred Upton of Michigan. They co-sponsored it, and the Doctor Lorna. Green Health Care Provider Protection Act does several things. First of all, it establishes grants for the training of health professional students and residents and health professionals in these evidence informed strategies to reduce and prevent suicide, burnout, mental health conditions and substance use disorders. It's a great a great component of this, of this, act. Mm-hmm. in addition, it seeks to identify and disseminate evidence informed best practices for reducing and preventing suicide and burnout. So it's, mm-hmm. it's asking and, and it's disseminating those best practices and, and the best practices, not just at reducing and, and preventing it, but also in how you train healthcare professionals in appropriate strategies on right. mental health to promote their own, well, best um, their, their own mental and behavioral health and, and bring the joy back in medicine, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. and, the other, and, and another key component of it is it establishes a, a large education and awareness campaign targeted at healthcare professionals to encourage them to seek support and get help. Frankly, one of the things that Jennifer and I did almost immediately after Lorna died was we decided that that was that piece was going to be something that we were going to do, and this was going to be a part of what our life's work was going to be was to mm-hmm. share an awareness of these issues to help shine a light on 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 this on on the on the stigma and and mm-hmm. burn it out Absolutely. and then finally, and then finally, the the grant the, the, the act establishes grants for um, employee education and peer support programs programs that you and I have been talking about during this um, during uh, during this uh, radio interview um, in in both current and former COVID hotspots, um, in particular, but all other places. But the the COVID hotspots are going to get the priority there. But but again, this is something that really needs to scale the country. So so those are the big. I would say the big four elements of, of the act. and, and, and I would, we are trying to keep as current as possible on it. In fact, just before this program, I received um, an update uh, from Senator Kane's office, who's contacting us regularly with more thumbs up and more co-signers and more support. because this mm-hmm. is not a political issue, Suzanne. This is everyone's issue. This mm-hmm. is not a monetary issue. This is about This is about treating our healthcare heroes as human and treating them with the same dignity and respect that we all expect to have around our mental and be, our mental and physical health
1: so it's so important i want i'm going to go back to what you started with corey how will this be integrated in a culture that expects them to spend the kind of time on that medical record the electronic record demands a certain amount of hours. demands a certain amount of uh, number of patients that they must see in the course of a week, in the course of a day. Will this, in some way, address that culture that boxes them into an untenable situation?
2: Uh, it, it, absolutely, because it it's sh- with with this with that third leg, which is the awareness campaign. That's how it starts. It starts by having conversations, conversations like you and I are having mm-hmm. um, ev- right now. And if mm-hmm. if that if if we can shine a light on this and talk about it to a point when it just becomes uh, common, uh, more, more common and more accepted, that's when you start to break the stigma. Um, okay. There's a phys- mm-hmm. Let me just let me just quickly share an example. so, after, so the New York Times ran a piece on on Lorna several months ago. And the day after, there was a Twitter explosion that was started by a physician in the Pacific Northwest named Esther Chu, who's an emergency room physician, who raised her hand and said, I, too, have had mental health challenges in the past, and I have sought treatment for those challenges. And that created a cascade of thousands of other tweets that followed Esther's original tweet. And that's mm-hmm. what we have to do. So it, yeah. the act alone won't do it, but those, but having the conversations, shining the light on it, creating a community of support, those are the key components here.
1: Perfect, wonderful. So let me ask you this: for all our listeners out there, how can they learn more about the foundation? Contribute to the foundation? What is the website they would go to? What would you? What is it that they would? Um, look for.
2: For more information, um, please follow us on social media and go to our website, um, and you can get the social media links on our website. Uh, The website is drlornabreen.org. That's drlornabreen.org. And uh, we would love to help uh, to answer any questions that your listeners have and and share more information about this. We've just launched a new website this past weekend, and um, it is full of information on this subject, um, and in addition, we would greatly appreciate donations to um, to help uh, in our efforts, and there are ways to donate uh, through the website as well.
1: Uh, Corey, I want to thank you for joining us today. This has been an unbelievably important show. Um, I want to thank you also, you and your wife, for all that you've done so far, Uh, for the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. Um, Lorna's death is a tremendous loss to just so many. But through the foundation, she'll continue to be remembered for who she was, and she'll continue to save lives. So I thank you both very much, and I thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Suzanne. All right. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this in any prior show as a podcast. This will be a podcast by 5 p.m. Eastern. It, it will be on every platform on your the app podcast app of your iPhone, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, etc. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please be safe, thanks, and be listening.